Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Teresa Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott, Matthew Snayman, Jasmine Smith. How are you guys doing today? Good. Good. So good. I'm doing all right. <laughs> okay. All right. Everyone's had a good week, everyone? Yeah. Yeah, for the most part. I can't believe it's almost September. Girl, I know. <laughs> it's like, wow, what a year, right? Oh, I know. At least it's the weather really is been a blur. Yeah. I know. I was just looking mm. up and I was like, it's like four months left in this year. Like, oh my goodness. Um, it's wild. Yeah. What what a time to be alive. Uh, this, wow. <laughs> this week we'll be talking about uh, a Long Island legal case, the USPS and the press, California's deal to address pollution and much, much more. So let's kick off the episode today with our local news. Matthew, take it away. Okay, this is, uh, what was the alliterative title I gave it? A Long Island lottery lawyer enters litigation and loses his laurels. Um, if you search, so <laughs> pretty consistent. If you search lottery lawyer on Google, you'll find a search result that says Jason Curlin, the lottery lawyer, you have only one chance to do this the right way. Jason Curlin represented many of the largest jackpot winners in lottery history. Learn how dot, dot, dot. But if you click on that link, it goes to an unavailable webpage. Because that web page has been taken down, and in its place are a lot of uh, websites and news outlets uh, giving us all these details of a very strange and kind of weird case. Um, so, let's get ready for a very wild story, as wild and unpleasant as the Josh and Benny Softy's stressed dream of a film, Uncut Gems, which came out last year. I love that movie. Yeah. Oh, oh, you're going to like it or hate Am it. Am I going to like this story? <laughs> it ties in in a very unsettling way. Interesting. Okay. So from the Long Island Press, quote, the self-described lottery lawyer was among three Long Islanders indicted for allegedly conspiring to scam lottery winners out of $107 million. The victims included a $1.5 billion Mega Millions lottery winner, a $245 million Powerball jackpot winner, and a $150 million jack normal jackpot winner, I guess. Uh, end quote. What was the scam? Each winner paid Curlin and his law firm hundreds of thousands of dollars to advise them on how to safely invest their money. But getting rich off of the economic and legal inexperience of lottery winners wasn't enough for them. Curlin also, according to U.S. Attorney Seth D. Ducharme, quote, allegedly violated the law in his oath as a lawyer when he allowed co-conspirators to pillage his clients' bank accounts for their own enrichment. In addition, Russo and Smookler allegedly threatened to torture individuals, uh, torture an individual's wife and children, end quote. What the U.S. attorney is referring to is a scheme to funnel the lottery winners' winnings into quote-unquote investments. These businesses, however, weren't fully legit, and that's where the word pillage can be applied. Of the $107 million the lottery winners invested, they lost about $80 million. These frauds were started to be noticed before the, the news broke, and the police got involved. Uh, 
from the same article, quote, the defendants were recorded discussing the scheme and trying to cover their tracks on wiretapped phone calls. So they started to um, notice that things were happening. So they wanted to get the money back before the other shoe dropped. Conversations then and the cops were wiretapping them. Okay, conversations included those in which Russo and Smookler, the co-conspirators, invested the victim's money with Gregory Alturi, a jewelry merchant, who they gave a $250,000 street loan. Russo and Smookler were expected to be repaid more than $400,000 for the loan, and they threatened the victim and the victim's family with violence if he didn't repay. Emily, does this sound familiar? <laughs> To the yeah, the it does. <laughs> it's almost the exact same thing. It does. <laughs> Wild. Yeah. But it's 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 weird because the movie, Adam Sandler, who's in debt to these loan sharks, and he's also a jeweler, uh, he just gets beat up and threatened and everything. But the movie is even is less slimy because in real life these people they were saying some awful stuff like threatening to like we're gonna tear your kids' teeth out while you watch and like you know your wife is gonna be in trouble. Ugh. So like that movie, which was really slimy, uh, was somewhat yeah. more moral. Huh. Uh, so yeah, so the parallels to the movie are obvious, um, but it gets strange because comparing the movie to this real life was so applicable that Russo, uh, one of these people threatening to you know try to get their money back, referenced the movie in one of these wiretap phone calls. <laughs> And uh, in, in this conversation, he was actually the like the bad guy in the movie, <laughs> and he like referenced the movie to like describe himself and like in like a positive way, which is kind of weird. Um, uh, which anyway, movie is anyway. it again? It's called, it's Uncut, called Uncut, Gems. Uncut Gems. Oh, okay, yeah. I thought that's what you said earlier. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, I'm so stressed with it. It, it took me three <laughs> yeah. three sittings to watch it because it just made me feel so awful. But anyway, I'll finish <laughs> this little thing. Um, let's get to the moral of the story, right? Because this story is sensational. It's, you know, it sounds like a movie. It has a lot of these tropes, tapped phones. There's a mob connection. The lottery is involved. Um, but... Here's where I think it, it gets a little bit more, it gets less fictional and seems a little bit more like real life. And the secret to Mr. Curlin's operation, this is the lawyer who says that he's like this lottery lawyer and is like, uh, you know, people should come to him so he can help them like save their money and not lose all their money. Uh, he had built up this persona as the lottery lawyer. He'd call himself it. And he built it up so so well that in 2016, he was interviewed by Vice in an article that was like, what to do if you win the lottery? Like he was seen as like kind of an authority or figure that could talk about it. And he did talk about it quite well. And he, he sounded smart. It's not like he knew what he was doing. And he talked about how he wanted to protect people from scams. And he positioned himself as a guardian for those, uh, quote, winners who are not sophisticated enough to see it. End quote. And the it would be winners that aren't sophisticated enough to see a scam. But the scam was his scam. And he created a persona. People trusted him. And he was swindled. And I think that sounds pretty familiar. Not just Uncut Gems familiar, but like, 
you know, the presidency. <laughs> and I don't know. It felt it felt eerily familiar. So that that's what's going on over in Long Island. Um, but they caught on to it, and hopefully through litigation they'll be able to get these people's money back. So interesting. Sometimes when you hear stories like that, that map, like um, movies that already exist, it kind of makes you wonder how much me like movie representations and of characters kind of influence how people choose to act in real life. Do you know what I mean? Where like, like girls watching mean girls decide that that's, you know, the way to have power in school is to bully other people like that sort of thing, you mm -hmm. know, because I think there are studies that show that that does happen. It's like it's this like circular. It's like this this cycle of behavioral influence. Well, what was the that KKK film that Woodrow Wilson loved so much? Oh, my gosh. Where, Birth of um, Birth of yeah. yeah. And that's where the the image of the burning cross didn't exist before that movie. Mm hmm. Wow. That's, yeah, that's it's really, exactly. It's I liked I saw Uncut Gems in the theater and it, I really enjoyed it, but it was a big adrenaline rush. But I'm surprised that there's this connection between the two. The only thing I could see that's similar is like once they're extorting people and they're threatening violence, but it's not like there was a scam going on. Like he had like a gambling addiction. Mm -hmm. So why why did this per I wonder why this person latched on to that movie as like their inspiration? Yeah, well maybe it was just like the one person that <laughs> that because because that movie like, is like a fringe I'm the movie. Punisher, like, I'm gonna come get you like that one character. And I think the movie also implies there's a certain level of seediness going on with where people get the money from. It's not all above board, and that sort of like I think that um ideology maybe filtered down yeah, a little bit like glamorizing the underworld like criminal mm -hmm. underhanded stuff yeah yeah there was this know. if you it's a very good episode it's old but i think it's called it's called petty tyrant and it's a this american life episode about this guy who was like a janitor in a school system oh. in a small town and he really thought of himself as like the godfather. Like he ran this, like his little circle of influence, like the mob. It was so banana. Like it's a good story to listen to, but the way that he was able to intimidate people and just grow all of this power was just so mind blowing. But yeah, it was, it was something like he really lived as though he were living in a gangster movie. And meanwhile, like he's a custodian, but he was able to develop like this really threatening persona and people were really in fear, like living in fear of this guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think The Godfather is probably a really good example of people in real life, like looking to it as an example of how to act if they're if they visualize themselves as wanting to be like a like, you know, old school gangster type like that you know what i mean like it's not like and it but it's of course like that movie is based on a book that was written in like the 70s right so it's like it's not it's all it's all it's this weird cycle of art imitating life and life imitating that art that imitates life Man, i just know? heard a really funny factoid from reddit subreddit today i learned and i think mario puzo was the author 
uh, who wrote the book and he adapted yeah. it into the movie and you know there's so many funny things you know like how he invented things about the mafia just to make it more like stylistic like coming to someone on their wedding day or whatever um but the thing i just learned was so he he converted it into the a screenplay right and after he wrote like another movie he was like oh you know i i should get the basics of screenwriting down you know i think i just got lucky because i'd already written this book and he opened up one of these books for like how to write a screenplay and then like the first chapter it references the godfather <laughs> like this is how you do it wow yeah that's really interesting yeah. I mean, where do you guys yeah. think they come up with that these way. ideas from? I don't think that, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like when the art imitates life, I do believe it because it's like if people think of these things in their mind, you think sometimes they have like examples, but sometimes, you know, I guess in this case they may not. But a lot of times I feel like these shows where they're telling us things about the government or all of these like situational things that could be happening, there's so much truth in there. And I always wonder, like, how do they know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i think that that's i think that um it's a symbiotic i think that's the word relationship where there is elements of reality and what's being portrayed but i think the role of the media is it kind of normalizes certain things and it can exaggerate certain aspects like there was um this big it was i wouldn't say it was a debate but um people were talking on twitter a lot about the crack epidemic era and the movies and tv shows that came out around that time and people were on the one hand saying like well it was like that because i lived it and then other people were like i lived in that time too but you can see in the media representation how like there was a deliberate decision made to like only show what's happening in urban areas or to overemphasize like the police being the good guys like that there's like an agenda behind it even though like there's elements that you recognize from real life and they are factual like there are you know other forces at play and like promoting that like oh this type of criminal is like a stylish gangster and that's cool. Whereas this type of criminal in this sort of film is like, clearly that's the villain and they're evil and they have to die, you know? So it's it's an interesting relationship, but I think for me, it, it seems like the role of media is to sort of normalize and tell you how you're supposed to feel about different, you know, players in these I, situations. I Definitely. I'm, you know, like the um, Eisenhower years, the 1950s, like all the movies and TV shows showed, you know, like white, like middle class family two one boy, one girl, you know, nuclear family. And, you know, just try because it was like this this ideal like post-war ideal ism like in the world. Like this is how we're supposed to look at the world around us. And it's sort of like feeds off each other in that way. Well, of course, like there's McCarthyism going on in the background. There's all these like political movements that are kind of frightening happening, but you don't see that in the media. So the way the world kind of looks at that time period is changed a little mm. bit because of that media. That's super but in, real. In a weird yeah. way, that distortion is representational or representative of the power structures, right? So like if you have a sophisticated eye and you can pair it with, uh, history and 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 what we know about like you know like what was going on in south america at the same time you can see oh this is like a 
uh, a group of like um, white people in government and in media like placating people and like establishing these roles and there's like a weird truth to it in the distortions. I think that's also that's where media literacy comes in and that's something that a lot of people um uh, for lack of a better term, don't have because there's a lot of people that do take things at face value and they're not thinking that, oh, like the show that I think is just a really good drama is also copaganda or this show. Yes, Jasmine, <laughs> That's a great term. I was going to use the word media literacy too. Um, it's so important and it's it, it, not only in the TV shows you watch and the movies, but also like advertisements. Right. Like, you know, especially I feel like I look back on my childhood and see the images of like, you know, women in these magazines. And I grow up thinking that that's what I'm supposed to look like. Um, and there's and I didn't have any sort of like, you know, there should be a class in schools. Honestly, I had a friend in high school who used to say that all the time because it's like, how do we teach like how do we teach kids? Well, the reason you're seeing this is because someone's making money off of this, not because this is the way the world necessarily should or needs mm -hmm. to look. Um, yeah, yeah, media literacy. Yeah, one of my, one I agree of my because most. Um, I agree because. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just gonna say that I don't think people really have those like breakdowns of um, shows or anything like that, especially with their kids these days. You'll see, like it used to be that you would get together with all of your friends and you'd have like a deep discussion about what happened, and you could kind of break down some of it. But today, it's kind of like. You know, were you able to sit through it? Is it pretty popular? Is it easy to access? People don't really, you know, take the time to see, sometimes see the art in pieces like this. They just kind of take it in a large consumption and don't consider the different ideals that were expressed in the work, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And also today, it's like back in the day, you only had but so many channels. So even if you came from very different walks of life, you were more or less watching like the same type of news show or the same types of network TV programs. Whereas now it's, uh, it's so like a la carte. So you can find whatever it is that you're looking for or whatever it is your bias is or your slant, that's what you're going to consume. And then it just sort of, in my opinion, makes it even more extreme, like what you choose to see or what you choose not to see, because you do have so many options Like you, you it's so easy to just tune out anything that doesn't affirm like how you already look at the world. <laughs> That's great. It's like before you needed media literacy and now you need like self literacy, like understanding your own choices. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for bringing that story, Matt. That was a really interesting thing to chat about. So I guess it's time for us to take our first musical break. We have some dope new music for you today. The first track comes from Bryce Vine off his new album, Problems. This is It Falls Apart. Stay tuned. Can someone come and pick me up? I think I'm good. I had enough. I spent the night at my house. I left my wallet in the couch. So can you come and drop it off? And can you bring some heat along? I'll meet you underneath the moon A darker side of me you, you know I'm just as lost as you are Blame it all on the stars If it falls apart, it falls apart I'm just as lost as you are 
falls apart Cause we're running out of time But we feel fine Running out of days But it's all okay Spill your whiskey on the floor Someone come and pick me up I'm hella good, I had enough Let's start a riot on the streets Call the lobby for the keys to me, yeah. I'm just as lost as you are Blame it up on the stars If it falls apart, it falls apart I'm just as lost as you are You light me up, I've been in the dark If it falls apart, it falls apart Need a little more and I don't wanna let you go Say I'm crazy and I'm never gonna change The stars are out of focus, the bars are finally closing down Cause we're running out of time but we feel fine Running out of days but it's all okay Spill your whiskey on the floor, someone come and pick me up I'm just as lost as you are Blame it up on the stars if it falls apart Falls apart. I'm just as lost as you are. Light me up. I've been in the dark. If it falls apart, it falls apart. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday morning news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our national news segment. Jasmine, what do you have for us today? So today I'm talking about the United States Postal Service we know is in a lot of trouble. Um, it's a cause of great concern to most Americans who are paying attention, um, not just because of the upcoming election, but also there's lots of people who depend on the Postal Service to make life-saving deliveries every day for medicine and things like that that they need. But um, this article that I'm going to share with you was written by Aaron Gordon for Vice News through Motherboard. And the title is USPS warns employees not to speak to press. So the United States Postal Service has been sending its staff memos telling them not to speak to the press and it's warning them to be suspicious of any customers who ask a series of questions because the, that means the customer might actually be a journalist. The memos outline what employees are supposed to do if they're contacted by the media, and the memos are titled Guidelines for Handling Local Media Inquiries. They direct employees to decline to make any statements and to tell them who to contact if they receive such an inquiry. They were sent out to employees in the last few days, so. This article is from yesterday, August the 20th, um, and it's following a large number of articles that have come out about the changes Postmaster General Louis DeJoy has made that have put the post office under major scrutiny. The memo says the Postal Service continuously strives to project a positive image, protect its brand, and present a unified message to the customers and communities it serves. It is imperative that one person speaks on behalf of the Postal Service to deliver an appropriate, accurate, and consistent message to the media. Avoid the temptation to, and this is in quotes, answer a few questions. Keep in mind that while the most media representatives will, that most media representatives will identify themselves up front, sometimes they do not. If you are dealing with a customer, especially one who asks a series of questions, it is perfectly appropriate to ask, are you a member of the media? 
Asking this specific question will help ensure your interaction is not used as the basis for any kind of official postal service statement or position. The memo makes it seem like it's normal for reporters to conceal their identity, which is not accurate. According to Gordon's article, it's broadly regarded across the journalism industry to be unethical to conceal one's identity as a reporter when seeking information in a professional capacity, except in extreme cases where it is otherwise not possible to gather information in the public interest a condition which obviously doesn't apply to the USPS, end quote. The memo also frames just simply asking questions as suspicious behavior, which, you know, considering the state of things, that's ridiculous. Like, it would be normal for someone who's a normal, like a regular customer to be concerned and to have questions about what's going on with the Postal Service. The memos also conflate the different types of publications reporters work for and also so in social media networks. One of the memos says, if you are contacted by a media representative for official comment, including but not limited to newspapers, radio, television, and social media, such as Twitter and Facebook, follow the steps below. So the person who wrote the article is saying that they don't think it's clear why Twitter and Facebook would be mentioned here. To be fair, the article does mention that it's common for organizations to ask employees to direct reporters through official channels, but given the current situation with the Postal Service, it's really suspicious timing, and in my opinion, it seems to be suppressing transparency. Um, like you would think that if everything was on the up and up, it wouldn't be a problem for everyday customers to just ask what's going on. Um, towards the end of the article, there's an invitation for USPS post workers to get in touch with Aaron Gordon at vice.com, A-A-R-O-N dot G-O-R-D-O-N at vice. And there's a link, if you Google the title of this article, there's a link in the article to contact him securely if you would um, like to get some information out. So yeah, it seemed very big brother to me and very creepy, you know, like you can't even just ask how's your day without it seeming like, you know, that makes you a suspicious character in the post office. I think it's really interesting that, you know, we've never really considered like the power of the Postal Service. I remember when I was in grad school, um, we were talking about the different things, the functions of the UN and the things that, you know, countries have to come together to agree upon on a global scale. And um, a long time ago, like Postal Service and Mail Service, uh, things like that were kind of like best practices that they used. And now we're in this moment um, when we're putting so much pressure Um, on the Postal Service. And I feel like, you know, people don't really realize that throughout everything, whether rain, sleet, snow, protests, heat waves, the Postal Service is like the background of this country in so many ways, the way that it interacts with all of our lives. And now we're in a situation where, you know, they're like picking apart the people that run it. And of course, it's attached to big money. I mean, it's one of the largest industries in this country. So I'm sure there's a lot more to come out that, you know, that we can learn from this process. But I never really took the time to examine, like, 
how they play such a big role. And now that we're depending on them so much, you know, it's, it's controversial of their safety as well yeah, as the I safety think... of everyone else. If, um, the service is disrupted. Oh, yeah, I think the post, it, you're so right though. The post office is like, it's, it's, I think it's for major. many people, <laughs> it's, it's major. major. And I think for many people, for many people in this country, I don't think we've real, like, it's, it's like, it's like the color gray, right? It's just there and it's not neither good nor bad. It's just, it's there and it's part of our lives, you know, like learning how to write an envelope in elementary school, how to fill out an address, like, um, and suddenly it's an, it's, uh, it's under threat from people, right? Big money, just like you said, who want to, pri- who we can all assume want to privatize it, just like prisons have been privatized, um, which benefits a few people with a lot of money, right? Um, and it's it's been so wild kind of realizing that we have to fight for things that we assumed would just always be there and always be a resource for us. Um, it's Yeah, it's been a wild time. Hmm. Did anyone watch the hearings today? Uh, this was it the Senate? Oh, wait, no, I thought it was at Congress. What were the hearings today? Where Lucy Joy answered questions? I didn't have a chance to watch it. Hmm. Did you? I saw a couple clips, and I can't remember why I can't. For some reason, I thought it was this. No, but it was before Congress. Anyway, um, the gentleman who was running it—I can't remember his name—was uh, very much on on the the side of uh of was a republican defending saying that this was all big political attacks and people were trying to like use uh the the current uh struck difficulties the postal service is in because uh because of the coronavirus and they're trying to exploit that and say that you know this is like there's some big conspiracy or whatever and, and democrats are trying to use it for political gains and it was just so surreal because it's, it, it was weird because the guy just like wouldn't acknowledge the fact that even though some people are talking about it like there is a conspiracy to try to undercut the postal service so that like mail-in voting doesn't work, like people are talking about that. And I don't think there's much to like a coordinated conspiracy, but, um, but it is a fact that the president did say in front of the entire world that he would be in favor of like defunding the postal service so that mail and ba- ballots like wouldn't work. But not the police, uh, right? Though, but not the police. No, <laughs> that's <some> bullshit. <laughs> yeah, let's just yeah. get the cops to like deliver the mail, you know? I know, and it is. Doesn't it feel like you're kind of being gaslit when you hear people on like you know? like uh president trump's like allies or whatever like telling that like people on that we agree with that you know there's a big conspiracy on our side or something or it's all political when like where they're literally saying well this you know if it happens to go away that benefits the president right like it's like it's it's it feels like insanity (laughs) and it's crazy and it's upsetting yeah yeah, that's the yeah. word. And anyone ever watched the movie that origin that originated the term gaslighting? Yeah, I've seen yeah. it. Gaslighting. I've, seen gas- I've actually seen a lot of people saying that we should go back to saying um, just straight up lying because people mm. have been using the term gaslight a lot. But I, I think that um, it makes sense in the context of like you see before your it's like you have someone yeah. basically telling you not to believe what your eyes are telling you. Yeah. Like what it's, you it's, clearly see is going on. 
I agree, Jasmine. It's more specific than lying. It's it's trying to make you doubt your own what you what you actually are seeing and doubt your your sanity. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like the the petty tyrant the, the from that this American Life episode like he, he was able to exert such power by being was he just like a like an asshole to people and he they... was uh, he was violent. Like I don't want to get too far off topic, but he was just like violent. He I think he blew up people's classrooms like he did a lot of wild shit <laughs> okay that's it wasn't not... <laughs> just like he was bullying people he was really he didn't perfect the psychology of oppression yeah no there wasn't anything subtle about that guy it was really bad but i i, I remember like when you're on around 34th street there's that really big post office and it's corny, but I always like to read, like, they have that inscription, like, neither rain, sleet, snow, hail, like, will stop the workers of the United Postal Service. Like, I don't have the quote exactly right, but it is such a lifeline. And yeah, I, it, was, I, uh... it was a long time ago, but someone had, it's so common for people to complain about the post, the post office. Mm-hmm. And someone was bringing, I don't remember who it was, but they were bringing up the, a good point that, you know, it's like the great equalizer, like you got to stand in line like everybody else. And they make sure that they get to everyone. Like a lot of these private places, if you live in the middle of nowhere, they will not go to you, you know, but the postal service has to, has to do it. And they handle so much more volume than these private, um, companies and they've been having to fund their own pensions for years and yeah, a lot that's of other, the big one right yeah that's like what's crippling them or not i don't want to say crippling like that's what's hurting them so badly so you know and it's also yeah. been a vehicle for people to get to the middle class like without having to necessarily be super educated or whatever it's it's a lifeline yeah and yeah do any of you know postal workers uh, no, I know one I guy. Don't, do you? What one uh, mail carrier? Yeah, yeah, I was just gonna say, a... um, one of my friends, one of my friends' mom worked for the postal service when I was in um, grade school and high school, and she worked there for like her whole life. You know, she liked not being succumbed to the desk, and she liked serving her community. So it was a career for her that she turned out, you know, to really love and be very committed to. She was a part of a lot of people's lives. You know, because mm. she was that postal lady for many years, you know, yeah. another and the guy I know vector. used it to get through. Um, he, it was able for him to pay for college. He loved the job. It was a good job. He drove like the, the little he had the little little like Jeep type thingy. Um, that was great. Oh, with the, the wheel on the opposite side of the car. Yeah. <laughs> Always so <laughs> cool. So weird. So weird. My friend but, um, Eric yeah. did, was a postal worker and his father is still is a postal worker so yeah it is a vehicle i'm sorry emily you keep getting cut off no it's okay i don't it's i mean it's i was just to keep the conversation going um the the other part of your story is about you know suppressing someone's right ability to speak to the press i should say um which is also like frightening too i don't think we should i think we need we should also address that and how you know it's not like it's not a private corporation where you can sort of, you know, it, it feels like a private corporation. You ask your employees not to speak to the press, but for a public institution to do that feels like a violation of their second amendment rights or first amendment yeah, rights. I kind of expected it. Not the second amendment. <laughs> I kind of, ex- not the guns rights. I so kind of expected it. 
honestly, just because it's such a institution, you know, I mean, I'm not saying it's right or, you know, justifying it at all, but I did expect to have, you know, hear this, that they would kind of limit their ability to speak out what's happening. Cause I, I've definitely been wondering, you know, we haven't really heard from any postal workers. Like I haven't seen any like real interviews or anything like that with the people who are ultimately being affected by all this drama. Mm. I've I've actually seen a few and heard a few. Like I'll when the show goes up, like I'll put some links to articles and interviews and stuff. But this article that I talked to you about is after that, so I think there has been like word has been getting out. Like there was um, an article about things piling up and like rotting and stuff. And also, DeJoy made a public statement about putting off a lot of changes that would. Um, potentially mess with the election until after the election, but then people inside of the post office were saying that we're still being directed to go through with the changes anyway. So Mm. I think that the word has gotten out enough, and then this is them reacting to it to try to scare more information from coming out or scare people from saying more to the press. That's messed up. And hey, we we they, went a little bit oh. long on the last one. Should we wrap up so we don't have to cut off the double story coming up? No, it's cool. We got it. We got to stay on track so we can get to everything. So it's fine. All right, I'll take us out. So thank you so much, Jasmine, for that story. Definitely something we all need to kind of consider. You know, our postal service and its um, service to all of us, and just kind of like how important they are to the lives of everyone in this moment. Um, you can still vote early. I'm still going to tell y'all to do this for your your older, you know, uh, family members. I actually got the uh, request for mail-in ballot for my parents and my aunt the other day, and they're in Ohio, and I filled it out for them and sent it just because, you know, they make you jump through hoops to even do that. Um, so if there's somebody in your life that you could do that for, make sure you step up and do that. All right, let's get back into our music. Um, This is a pretty dope track. I had never heard of this band before I was looking for music today. It's a Danish pop band called Lucas Graham, and this track is called Share That Love. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. I remember driving on my side, smokes up, windows open. The sun's in our eyes, but it's all right. Cause we don't know where we're going We don't need no mirror pointing back Forget about the past, what's done is done And that is that You didn't have more than the shirt that's on your back But I'll never forget the way you turned to me and said When the good times are rolling on me I got plenty in my pocket if you're ever in need Bad times, nowhere I've been I got plenty in my pocket if you're ever in need
dance and we ghost on. Got me wide open. Each time you fall in love, you run the risk of get heartbroken. But stay inside forever where your doors are hardly open. This game will charge a tax. This game will charge a token. Cause at this rate, love is lost and that is that. One day, no text. She had a panic attack. And once you give yourself, you can't never have it back. She been through hard times. She ain't going back to that. She ain't going back to that. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And I'm going to jump right into our world news story. So I'm taking us back to Lebanon just to follow up a little bit on uh, that story we talked about um, a couple weeks ago. And the articles I will be referring to uh, are from CNN. One is by Barbara Wojazer and Rory Sullivan. And the other one is by Tamara Kwablali. Ali Yonez, Mustafa Salem, and Ghazi Balkis. I apologize if I mispronounced anyone's name there. All right, so Lebanon's government stepped down on Monday night, less than a week after the massive explosion in Beirut that killed more than 170 people and wounded more than 6,000 and sparked days of violent protests. Prime Minister Hassan Diab addressed the nation, announcing his resignation and that of his government, calling the explosion a disaster beyond measure. In this speech, he berated Lebanon's ruling political elite for fostering what he called an apparatus of corruption bigger than the state. The cabinet ministers had already quit along with seven members of the parliament. So Diab was put into power last December, two months after an uprising brought down the previous government. His government is composed of technocrats and had been supported by major political parties, including the Iran-backed political and militant group Hezbollah. Now the country will be tasked with finding its third prime minister in less than a year to contend with the spiraling crisis Lebanon faces on a number of issues. Uh, Lebanon's currency has lost lost around 70% of its value since the anti-government protests began in October and poverty soared. The World Bank is projecting that more than half of the country's population will become poor in 2020. The government had been seen as powerless in the face of the growing banking crisis, and the state had not passed a capital controls law, so that exacerbated the country's severity of these issues. Diab's ministers had repeatedly accused the ruling class of disrupting their plans for reform. Politicians aligned with the country's banking elite mishandled the government's IMF-endorsed economic program, which had been expected to dig into big bank profits. Lebanon's president, Michael Ayoun, has said that it would be impossible for him to resign following the calls for him to leave office. He spoke um, to a French network, the BFM, and he said, quote, this is impossible because this would lead to a power vacuum. The government resigned. Let's imagine if I was to resign. Who else would be able to continue power? If I were to resign, one would need to reorganize elections right away. But the current situation in the country does not allow for organizations to even do that and begin with elections. The president added that he has asked the Judicial Council to supervise the probe and call for an independent magistrate to investigate. So yeah, their government stepped down um, and left the president to figure out this disaster. Um, Wow, Um, I know our government goes on break. They don't come to work. They, what do they call that when they disappear for a minute? But they always come back. Yeah, they go on recess. They don't resign. Uh, What a thought. What do you guys think about this? Was that, is that Hezbollah? The, um, were they in power? Were they in power? 
like were they the political party that was in power and they were like we're gonna we're gonna chill out because everyone hates us right now and, and they left was was that what happened um well no they were support this this government that was that just stepped down they were supported by that group and also supported by the major political party so maybe they had been you know more inundated in the government previously when that oh, administration had stopped is a is a group that supports different political parties. Exactly. And one of them that in one of Lebanon's political parties had backing by Hezbollah. That's the um, one that just sat down. Okay. Yeah. That's a- <laughs> Yeah. Um so what do you do when your government you know they resign? Uh, I just just the thought of that <laughs> one like what would that mean for us as Americans if that actually happened but yeah, I just I just find it really bizarre um, just because, you know, it's it's really unfortunate that so many people are dependent on, you know, these national leaders to be there in this time of crisis and help to just pull something back together. I mean, the situation does seem pretty hopeless based on everything else that had been going on there, but it can't be. You know, there's there's millions of people over there that's, that are struggling, you know, just to stay alive at this moment and mm-hmm. their government left them. Did, did the article say how bad the economic figures were before? Because you said that it was projected that over half of the population will be like considered like, Poor. in poverty. Yeah, yeah it, said it, it said its currency lost 70% of its value um, <laughs> last October. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean. Wow, that's so crazy. I mean. Also, it's like it just makes me also I mean, I didn't do good at economics in college, but just like the idea that like an entire nation could just have like, you know what I mean? Like no paper money or like that. You know what I mean? Money that just doesn't mean anything is just so mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so unfortunate. It's like if the government steps down, you know, I was thinking about international aid coming in and trying to, you know, be filtered to people. This is like one of those situations where you know, diplomacy in a, in a time of, you know, complete devastation could almost look like another nation needs to come in there and clean up the mess. And I'm not justifying it, but it's just kind of like, well, what do you do if you're the only seated politician um, and you have to govern over all of the different industries needed to get this country out of this mess? Um, it just seems like an impossible task. I think it does uh, provide a good example of what you want out of your representation in government. So like in America, we have the whole like ridiculous, like who would you rather have a beer with poll or whatever? And it's like, yeah, I'm not electing a best friend or whatever. And so like a crisis is like, who do you want to be able to facilitate rebuilding of a city and finding housing for God, I can't even remember the figures of how many people are now are homeless um, and like a currency that's strapped. Like, like that's the type of people you want to pick in government, but instead, you know, and, and in part because of uh, the way that we view politics in the media and other things that aren't the media's fault because of um, certain things like the fairness doctrine being overturned and blah, yada, yada, yada. Uh, it really shows like, the next elections, like even like the smaller stuff um, that we're going to be voting for, it's like, who do you want? Well, who would you trust <laughs> in a massive crisis? And these what's people. The fairness, what's the fairness doctrine? 
maybe it, I'm using the wrong term, but it was like this kind of weird rule uh, that said it, and it was it existed for a while, and maybe it was the '90s. I can't remember exactly when, but they got rid of it, and it was just basically a rule that said like if you want to be a news organization, maybe it was like because some news organizations get okay. uh, money from the government because they don't do well in ratings. It's mm-hmm. like well, then you have to at least show uh attempt to do all the sides of an right. issue and then, i know what you're talking so i think what the fairness doctor was that um both candidates for a race need to have equal time on tele on public television so is that what you're talking about uh, that currently exists but it was something like that it was and I, okay. I can't remember exactly how how it worked but it was like mm-hmm. if i was going to go on a rant about um, how awful Trump is with the post office, I would also have to say, but it should be noted that the post office was doing bad before the mm. coronavirus, you know, mm. to like inject a little bit more truth into the equation. Interesting. And that was removed I'm, and here we are. I mean, I do feel like some of this may be rooted, rooted in corruption around, you know, why there was an explosion in the first place. You know, I've read lots of... Um, interviews with people you know saying that they were letting the government know for a long time trying to get this thing removed like it was just sitting there waiting to explode for way too much time and there's like everybody's like pointing fingers but the reality is if there is a something sitting a ticking time ball that can destroy your entire country and you don't find that as an important issue you know it's negligence and it's it's just awful like what are you even there for I feel like some people may have resigned just because their families are affected as well, you know? So it's not all their fault for resigning. I'm just trying to put it in context of what that means as far as actually finding solutions in the middle of this crisis. Mm-hmm. Well, I did. I know that when I think like Lebanon is heavily, um, dependent on imports and stuff. So the fact that the port was destroyed had really wide range implications for the people. But I just wanted to add that I've been seeing a lot of people who are Lebanese online on Twitter saying that if you would like to donate to help them, that they recommend going through the the Lebanese Red Cross. So that's redcross.org.lb. And, you know, I know that the regular Red Cross, there's a lot of um, scandals and things about them. But according to these individuals, like the Lebanese Red Cross is actually, it's legit and it's a safe way to donate. So mm-hmm. if, if anyone's listening and they're interested, it's redcross.org.lb. And I'll put Let's that link up that on Notre our Dame Facebook money. page. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah, so, you know. Prayers up for the people over there um, and anyone who has family in that area. Just, you know, in the midst of everything else that's happening, this is like an international crisis that not many people can even, we can't even do what we normally do to help people in this situation right now because of coronavirus. So it's just, yeah, it's really disheartening. Any final thoughts before Emily graces us with some good news? Well, I guess we're ready Did for I good news. <laughs> yeah, go for it. All right, yeah. let's do it. <laughs> All right. So, uh, information for the story comes primarily from an August 17th Reuters article by David Shepardson titled uh, Defying Trump, California Locks in Vehicle Emission Deals with Major Automakers. 
Uh, the article explains, quote, the California Air Resources Board, or CARB, which is very cute, I think, um, and major automakers on Monday confirmed they had finalized binding agreements to cut vehicle emissions in the state, defying the Trump administration's push for weaker curbs on tailpipe pollution. Um, so just as a little bit of a refresher, uh, Obama, uh, during his uh, presidency, had set rules calling for a 5% annual increase in vehicle emissions efficiency, which essentially reducing emissions, um, while the Trump administration lowered that to only 1.5% um, annual increases in annual increase in efficiency. Um, an estimate from the Center for Biological Diversity says that this new California deal will lead to a 3.7% annual increase in fuel economy through the end of uh, what the, when the deal is for, which I think is 2026 is what they sent it, set it for. Um, so, you know, 3.7 isn't exactly 5%, but it's a lot better than 1.5%. Um, so the car makers involved in the deal include Ford, Volkswagen, Honda, and BMW. And the plan was first announced uh, in July of 2019, which made Trump really, really mad, as you can imagine. Um, in fact, in September of that year, uh, quote, the Justice Department opened an antitrust probe of the agreements only to have it only uh, to end it without action. Um, ha, because they were just <laughs> mad. They were just trying to make a point politically um, and it didn't work. So uh, the White House did not comment on the finalization of this current deal. Ha ha. Um, and also <laughs> heads up, General Motors, uh, Fiat Chry Chrysler and Toyota did not participate in the agreement. And they, quote, also sided with the administration in a separate lawsuit over whether the federal government can strip California of the right to set zero emission vehicle requirements, um, which sucks. But uh, but yeah, so I think overall it's a good it's um, this is good news because it's showing that, um, you know, people who want to do the right thing when it comes to uh, environmental pollution standards don't have to listen to the federal government when they're trying to undo all that crap, which I feel like I'm getting an alert every day about them saying like, oh, Mercury's fine now. And so is asbestos. And like, you know, we can start polluting the rivers again. Um, <laughs> Anyone, more lies, been, more lies. It's been miserable. I hate, I like, I hate it. <laughs> more all lies. The time. I know. But yeah, that's the story. I love that they're pushing back against this this yeah. dude man but it's definitely good news to hear yeah. that there's some partnership going on with this cause because mm -hmm. that's really the way that we start to tackle some of these larger yeah. issues with climate change totally and it's it also feels good to know not all automakers but like that there's a, a you know a good number of big ones out there that are seeing that you know it's it uh relying trying to create products that re don't rely on coal or oil as much is, is good, right? This isn't a bad thing that they have to push out back against. There's a way for them to, you know, it's not going to put them out of business. There's a way to move into the future without destroying the planet. Hmm. Yeah. There, there are unlikely, yeah. um, unlikely good guys because yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stories about the auto industry being uh, untoward, you know, the whole, uh, VW diesel Ugh, thing yeah. and just the very nature of like the way that they have to calculate recalls and human life uh, you know mm -hmm. from like the Ford Pinto to just about like anything that can uh, call can like uh, malfunction and, and kill someone they like, you know they have the spreadsheets and everything mm -hmm. so yeah so it's, yeah it's nice that they're um, teaming up there's for a good yeah there's a few ones out there for sure uh, but yeah I think 
we're close to the end of the show here. If anyone has any last thoughts. Oh, thank you. Thank you, everybody, uh, (laughs) for your contributions this week. Another great show. Definitely always enjoy the conversation. So I guess that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thanks for listening. Uh, You can catch all of our older episodes on the RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app on Spotify or anywhere you can find iTunes podcasts. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. And we're going to play you out with our final track of the day. This is TikTok by Clean Bandit, Mabel, and 24 Goat. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.